Hi there, I'm Rory O'Connor, Professor of Health Psychology and a Mental Health Researcher at the University of Glasgow. And I'm Craig, a filmmaker and content creator at MQ Mental Health Research. And welcome to MQ Open Mind, a podcast that brings together lived experience with scientific research to help us to better understand mental health problems. And we hope to do so in a way that is accessible to all. In this episode, we speak to the CEO of the Centre for Mental Health, Andy Bell, which is an organisation that focuses on building mental health research to create fairer mental health policies. In September, over 30 mental health organisations, including MQ, joined together to call on all political parties to make a commitment to mental health in their election manifestos. The report, led by the Centre for Mental Health, made recommendations focusing on prevention, equality and support. In this conversation, we discuss the Mentally Healthy Nation report, how mental health issues disproportionately affect certain communities, and how the government can effectively support the nation. Welcome to the latest episode of MQ's Open Mind podcast. And Craig and I are once again here, and we've got another fantastic guest. So welcome to Andy Bell, and Andy is the CEO of the Centre for Mental Health. So Andy, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for asking me. Lovely to be here. Yeah, welcome in. I've always been really aware of what your the Centre for Mental Health does, but I'm really excited to hear a bit about your background. Um, so we're hoping to do maybe three things in the podcast today, hear a bit about who you are, and and obviously you've been in the, the sort of mental health voluntary charitable sector for some time, but you only recently became, as you'll tell us in a second, Chief Executive this year in 2023. So it'd be good to hear about your sort of journey into mental health. And then we'll talk a bit about what the centre does um, and how long the centre's been going and, and sort of your key achievements that the centre has made and your and your hopes and aspirations moving forward. And then the, 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 we'll get into the nuts and bolts about the the report, the Mentally Healthier Nation Plan, which, when was it published? When, when did you publish that? It was the 27th of September. Yeah, so, so, so it's a few weeks ago, yeah. yeah. Hmm. So it seems more recent than that, but it's obviously... Yeah, but 30 organisations, but we'll hear more about that, but 30 organisations coming together there. So maybe then let's rewind down to where I'd said we begin. So Andy, tell us a bit about you and your your journey, your career, and your, how you got interested in mental health. Yeah, thank you. So, so um, I've worked at the centre since the end of 2002, which is now a long time ago, longer than I care to think about too much. But I think like many people who who come to work in mental health, whether you are doing that as uh, an advocate in the voluntary sector or a professional in a service or, or, or any other role, it comes from a combination of personal experience and, and, and uh, friends, family members who experience difficulties with their mental health over time and and uh, understanding how important that is and how poorly understood it has been but also really seeing and understanding mental health as a social justice issue that's what it is it's about society it's about the inequalities and fault lines in our society and to be part of an organization that recognizes that and seeks to challenge that is something that's given me an enormous amount of uh, sense of purpose over the last uh, 20 or so years and uh, it doesn't feel like that's going to end anytime soon so, so um, I've been incredibly lucky to be at the centre through many different changes many different ways of working we've done lots of things over that time but um, that core purpose to create a fairer society um, and a more just society is at the heart of, of supporting better mental health for all. 
So Andy, tell us then about the so the center. How long has the center been going on, and the different iterations of it? Because I mean, you do everything everything from peer research through to policy synthesis, economic analysis, and so on. So can you tell us a bit about where the where the center began and and where it's got how it's evolved over time. So so uh, the center has been around since 1985, the beginning of March 1985, in fact. And um, for the first 25 years of its work, it was uh, funded and supported and created by the Sainsbury family. So Lord Sainsbury was the founder and benefactor for 25 years up until 2010. Money from the Gatsby Charitable Foundation supported the main core costs of the organisation. It also did a wide range of other activities for which it saw additional funding. But fundamentally, it was uh, a means of creating social change and research supported by the Sainsbury family. And uh, so over that time, it was involved in a whole range of initiatives from really supporting the implementation of community-based care in in, uh, UK health systems to ensuring that that people with more severe mental health problems were taken seriously by policymakers and and bringing models such as assertive outreach and and early intervention in psychosis to the UK from from other places uh, abroad. It also, of course, encouraged innovation and improvement. We, we provided a lot of training for people working in the system at various different times in the past. And it's also supported some very challenging radical critiques of the system uh, from, from the seminal Breaking the Circles of Fear report, which came out just before I started at the centre, actually, in mm-hmm. 2002, to our war work supporting recovery focused services in very early part of of, uh, the millennium. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we've looked at many different issues over time. We focused on prisons and criminal justice. We focused on workplaces and employment. We focused on children and young people. But the central values have always remained the same. It's about equality, it's about justice, and it's about using evidence and research to bring about positive change for people living with mental ill health. And when you so when you're reflecting then over well that period since nineteen the mid nineteen eighties and I suppose this is a bit of an unfair question but I'll fire away anyway is so to what extent do you think like so you, you've been tackling inequalities at that whole time equalities have got worse arguably right depending which metric you use I'm just wondering in your in your view are there different groups of people who are, who are experiencing inequalities now that weren't all those years ago equalities have been, inequalities have been persist for obviously decades and decades and decades so i'm just wondering what's your sense of that with that changing that landscape of inequality uh, inequalities do persist don't they and and um it is one of the great frustrations of mm-hmm. working in an organization seeking to influence social policy that we have ups and downs History isn't just a, a series of, of progressions towards a better and healthier society. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do see progress. We do see improvements. We also see things going backwards. Uh, I think because we know and have been really clear over the last few years in particular, since we've had a relentless focus on on uh, inequalities in society and their relationship with mental health, mm-hmm. is that mental health inequalities are social and economic inequalities, pure and simple. Mm-hmm. Groups of people that experience unfairness in society as a whole tend to have poorer mental health than others um, and tend to have a poorer experience of mental health services. So we know that this is structural and it can sometimes feel relentless and overwhelming and overpowering. So for us, it's about naming those mm-hmm. uh, and and uh, 
trying to kind of get an increased focus on equality. I think we've often observed that that um, when policy documents about mental health are made, if you want to know where equality is, it's the very last one and it's a bit of a kind of sop. Um, we'll do all these things. Oh, and by the way, we'll tackle mental health inequalities too. Um, and we know that's the wrong way around. We know that leads to things staying the same and nothing ever changing. Mm-hmm. So it's about naming it and being clear about it and being focused on it. And, and I think that's why through 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 the years we have seen times when there has been a bit more focus on some dimensions of inequality. They tend to be taken one at a time and almost like they're competing for attention. And of course, as we know, inequalities are, are they, they intersect with one another. They're often based on on um, kind of rather colonial white supremacist ideas of, of society is run. And so they can be incredibly resistant to change and being forced to to make small changes around the edges uh, inevitably leads us back to where we started. Yeah. I think you're right. And, and just something came, in, came into my head there when you're speaking is that about often inequalities still today are, are a footnote in, in some me- and too many mental health strategies or suicide prevention strategies, something I know a little bit about. And But actually in Scotland this last year, when we published our suicide prevention strategy, straight on centre, the first line, the vision, and I think it's the first strategy of its kind to actually do this, is all strategies have some version of wanting to reduce suicide. Of course they do. Mm. But we have also got want to reduce suicide and reduce the inequalities that lead to suicide. And and, I, and actually just having that first line front and centre really is has been so powerful, even in the short months since it was um, published. So, so even though we talk of we talk the talk about inequalities, I think the walking the walk still has a lot, a lot to. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it'll be a long time before there's there's genuinely that walking the walk of tackling inequalities properly. Because of course it's difficult, but I, because it's difficult, shouldn't be a reason why we 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 shouldn't stop trying. And and actually, just curious before we get into onto your the the mentally healthier report, I was just looking on your website this morning and. And just in the year in 2023, like the reports and briefings that you have published, the vast range of topics you covered. I mean, I'm just looking here, just got in front of me. We've got everything from addressing the mental health challenges of living with kidney disease through to, um, as we're talking about Muslim mental health. We've got uh, social needs amongst people living with mental health difficulties. So tell us, because that's really diverse. So within the centre, what's the process by which you prioritise or how do those brief briefings come about? I mean, it's a really good question. Uh, and and if you then looked at 2022, 21 and so on, then you'd see there's a diversity of work mm. that, that we do. And thank you for looking at our website. And I please encourage anyone to look at our website, sign up for our email bulletin, you know you want to. So, so fundamentally, we look at inequalities across a range of dimensions. Um, and a lot of our most interesting work is in partnership. Yeah. So, so we don't just organically come up with ideas ourselves. We sometimes do, but our best ideas often come when we're interacting with other organisations and partners and friends, and not just in the mental health sector either. So, so a lot of our work on mental health in the criminal justice system will be with prison reform charities, for example. We work a lot with experts by experience, um, and that's incredibly important to our priority setting. So we have a campaign called Equally Well, which we've been doing for five years, which focuses on physical health equality for people living with a mental illness to try to reduce the um, 
life expectancy gap, which sadly is getting worse. And all the work we do through Equally Well is jointly produced with experts by experience and experts by profession. And that's fundamentally important to, to that piece of work. So, so uh, as a group of 28, I think, staff, we now are. We have lots of ideas. We're a diverse group. But we also bring ideas in from, from the outside world and the places we go and the people we meet and, and the people whose stories influence us and help us to think differently about inequality. So we're constantly learning the, the work that we were lucky enough to do with Kidney Research UK, for example. That's incredibly important to people living with kidney disease. And what it's done is is really expose the very high mental health challenges faced by that group of people. But inevitably, it applies to people living with lots of other long term mm -hmm. conditions. And it also, as you would expect, highlights the importance of economic inequality uh, and, and uh, other forms of, of uh, uh, disparity of experience, if you like, that we've seen there. So, so there's a lot that, that we do that, that is focused in a specific area, but actually the implications are much, much broader. Again, it highlights the other issue, which is often or another issue is, I mean, people living with kidney disease probably in absolute numbers are, are isn't the vast number of people but but if, but even that aside but but the mental health consequences of that are can be really 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 mm. immense so i think it's so, and that's something we struggle with i think when we think about this in, in mq's context of or the research and funding landscape of things which have huge impact on a small number of people versus things that then can ha maybe have moderate impact but on vast numbers of people and i always find that sort of a public health versus sort of indicated sort of approach of prevention or, or treatment. So we're often asked in mental health to, to make choices that I don't think we should have to make. Yeah. So whether you choose to prioritise prevention or treatment, well, why? Why would we have to do that? Often the lines between them are much less clear than you might think. And so I think it's really important we stand our ground and, and hold to our belief that it's important both to prevent psychological distress if and when we can, but also to ensure that people get the very best services when they experience it. And, and as you say, we can only spend government money once. And so there are choices to be made. That's what we have a national health service for, a local government for, is to make those choices on the ground about how money is spent. But of course, if there isn't enough money going into mental health as a whole, those choices have to be really difficult. And they're not ones any of us would want to have to make ourselves. So, so um it's about making the case for mental health as a, a priority issue for government and, and health services at every level, while also rejecting the notion that, that we should somehow have to, to decide which of those things we want to do most. Well, absolutely. And I mean, um, we're sitting here as well uh, a few days after the King's speech in England last week in, in Westminster. And I know this only holds for England, not for the other parts of the UK, but very sadly, mental health did not feature in the King's speech, despite despite promises um, in the months to lead up. So, so I think even though again it comes back to this point about going from talk to action, is governments for too long have been talking have been talking about prioritising mental health, and we'll move on to your report in a second, which highlights why the public also value this focusing on mm. mental health. Never mind that we know that people need the support, but in terms of if you're if you're trying to tackle a topic which is important to the public, if you're a politician, why on earth are not tackling mental health or having it included in the, in the King's speech um, is beyond me. So, but before I get on to the mentally healthier nation uh, work, um, 
and they just took me there. It's, so when the Centre of Mental Health was set up, then that must be because I didn't realise it was as old as the mid 1980s, 85, I think he said. So that must be pretty unique at that stage because that was before the wave. So certainly I've been working in this field since uh, the mid mid 1990s, and I've seen a, a change in focus or prioritisation, say in the last 10 or 15 years, but not in the 1980s. So 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 Lord Sainsbury then was really that was really forward thinking of of him then at that stage. So what, what was the background to why he focused on mental health? So, so there, there was a book published about his philanthropic giving a few years ago, and, and it helped me to understand for the first time what that motivation was. And, and um, uh, fundamentally, I mean, it, it's an applied research organisation. Well, that's how it was set up. And effectively, it was on the basis that as, as many who kind of have an interest in science, uh, and obviously he was science minister in in, yeah. in a government uh, in times past that uh, Lord Sainsbury believed fundamentally that eventually science would create treatments for mental illness. But in the meantime, we need to ensure people's lives are as good as they can be now and they're getting the right support and the right help with the technology we have available now. I think what's fascinating is the more research we've had into mental health, we more the more we realise the importance of the social interventions and that we actually understand a social model of distress uh, alongside the biological and, and psychological. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, what was perhaps initially thought of as, as a, uh, a kind of temporary measure, if you like, to, to ameliorate the impacts of distress has mm -hmm. actually lighted on some of the things that are fundamentally important to it. So, so uh, in that ways, our understanding has evolved over time. But yes, the centre was completely unique at the time. I yeah. think we still are now. Um, that's not to say there aren't other organisations doing things alongside us, which are very similar. But um, what's wonderful about the mental health voluntary sector in particular is we work together. We have a very clear understanding of our distinctive roles, but that together they add up to more than the sum of the bits. So, yeah. so all these organisations active in mental health research, in campaigning, in network building, in policy influencing, it's really important that, that, that we come together to have a really clear shared message to, to people in power. But we also have very distinctive things we each do, which collectively build up our knowledge and understanding of, of what needs to change. Yeah, well, no, thank, thanks for that, because a mystery has been solved then. So that brings us nicely onto the report, a mentally healthier nation which as we noted at the start of the podcast was published in 27th of september last year or sorry this year so can you tell us what was the how did that come about so, so the simple story is that um when sajid javid was secretary of state for health he announced that we needed a new mental health plan for England. This was specifically focused yep. on England. And we thought, yes, that's a great idea. The last proper government strategy for mental health was in 2011 during the coalition government. That's now more than a decade old, of course. And and uh, since then, mental health policy has been more or less, less left by government to the NHS to sort out. So, of course, it's focused on mental health services, as it should. That's what the NHS provides. So we've had a real vacuum in terms of leadership across government on mental health and and uh, the department of health and social care put out a consultation they did a lot of work we did a lot of work uh, a lot of people were involved thousands of people literally responded mm -hmm. to the consultation and then the decision was made by subsequent uh, secretary of state not to publish a mental health plan we felt that was to put it lightly disappointing but all the work was there we'd all diligently responded to the consultation we'd asked lots of people their opinions so we thought, well, collectively, let's produce a sector-led 
plan for England. Now, obviously, because we're the voluntary sector, we can't make it happen, but we can set it out and produce a document which helps mm. to influence this and any future government about its priorities for mental health and really illustrates how mental health is a cross-government issue. It's something we may have got around to doing anyway. Because what it's done is it's allowed us to bring together a lot of work that we and others have been doing to to put into one single volume, uh, a, a, if you like, a kind of outline for what mm -hmm. should come. But um, it was hastened by by uh, that that particular set of decisions made within um, the UK government. And why do you think that is? Is it a lack of funding, or do they feel that it's too difficult, or is it a case of just trying to find a quick win? Um, it's hard for me to say why that decision was made. I think there is a major condition strategy that government's working on, and, and that will hopefully bring in some of the elements. I mean, there's no reason why anything that we put in a mentally healthier nation couldn't find its way into the major condition strategy. But because mental health is only one of six items within it, there may not be room for all of those things. So, so I think it was just uh, again, the decision making is not something that we were party to because, of course, we're outside government. But, but um, it, it became clear that that uh, there wasn't at the time being a, an appetite to produce a specifically mental health, specifically cross government plan. So, so uh, we felt it was important that, that uh, we expressed what that could look like. And it, of course, it is challenging for government to think about mental health as something that goes across departments. That means that DWP, the Department for Work and Pensions, needs to think about mental health. The Ministry of Justice and Home Office need to think about mental health. Our policies in relation to schools and early years and, and the whole of the education system needs to think about mental health. And that means influencing across the whole of government. Uh, and I think that's a particularly challenging exercise when uh, in particular, Whitehall is, is based on separate departments doing separate things for a lot of the time. Yeah, it's just that siloed approach, isn't it? And, and whose responsibility for mental health is then dissipated across different departments or people don't, don't um, do enough to recognise that each department of government has a role to play in mental health. But returning to the to the report then, so the report brings together 30 organisations, um, MQ, uh, we're one of those 30 organisations. Yeah. But in the report, you've got you have a vision, and your vision is that you think the government should have a long-term comprehensive cross-government plan, and that's absolutely essential to protect and promote the health, the mental health of the nation. And the report has three broad areas. You're, you're trying to address the causes of mental ill health in a sort of preventative type pro, uh, approach, eradicate mental health inequalities, and then thirdly is ensure the timely access to local services. So maybe taking each of those areas in turn, Andy. So so what do you think? And I know there's lots and people can read the report. It's available on Centre for Mental Health website and I dare say and MQ's mental website and lots of places. But can you maybe take maybe give us a couple of key points in each of those areas? So yeah. maybe starting with prevention. So if you were if we were to try and sort of uh, distill the key message from the prevention section or key messages, what would you say? Yeah, please do have a look at the report on our website. And, and if you work for an organisation and you think I'd like to support this too, I'd like our organisation to support, please get in touch with us. It is still possible to add your support to that document. We were thrilled that MQ and others were part of writing this report and helped us to produce something which is so comprehensive. But but there is still time to add your support. So so And it's crucial to say that prevention, equality and support do inevitably cross one another. They're not separate. Yeah. So yeah. things you can do for one benefit the other. 
So, for example, on the prevention end, we believe and, and we've heard very strongly from public health organisations that we need a new Child Poverty Act. We know that child poverty is massively toxic to mental health. It, it not just creates risks now, but throughout the whole of a child's life. So turning around the, the rising levels of child poverty is probably the single biggest thing any government could do to protect the nation's mental health from now onwards. Um, and, and having a clear target towards achieving that and having a clear strategy towards achieving that, it's not going to make it go away overnight, but it would make a long term difference of, of, of just very great magnitude indeed. Yeah, no, just to come in on that, I, I mean, the thing that surprises me over the last 13 years in particular is how the the, the reduction in focus and re, the taking away resources and supports for early life. I mean, it's such such a short-sighted move, as you say, because all the evidence, doesn't matter which indicators you look at, is that anything, the more we can do to protect people very early in life, in those early stages when the brain's still developing, the, where still you're trying to navigate and build relationships early on in life, is it the long-term impacts economically, never mind mentally and socially, are vast. So it's such a, was so short-sighted, sadly, but hopefully that'll change. Absolutely. And and I think the more we marshal the evidence, the more it is clear that uh, there, there are two dimensions to this, at least, aren't there? So, so we know about the importance of intervening early because uh, a child's experiences have a huge effect on their mental health throughout life. That does not mean that there is any age where you can't do things to prevent poor mental health. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can do things to prevent poor mental health at every single age uh, anyone is ever at, including in later life and end of life. And it's still the right thing to do. Um, but we do know about the the value of early years interventions. So things like supporting parenting, that could be done. There's, there's so much evidence around the benefit of particular parenting interventions that could be provided much more widely. There's growing evidence about the importance of a whole school approach to mental health. So supporting schools um, to, to implement that would make a big difference. But we also know about the importance of poverty, again, at any age on our mental health. And there is very compelling evidence that uh, higher levels of inequality associated with higher levels of distress between different countries and regions and we know that that particularly the poorest actions to uh, increase people's incomes uh, whether that's through state benefits or work bring about an immediate and very distinctive improvement in mental health Uh, taking money off of the poor and and making the poor poorer creates higher levels of distress and and including diagnosable conditions such as depression so that it's a very clear case for action. Yeah. And indeed, I think another one you have in the prevention section is the the, the, the mental health test for all government policies. Um, so tell us a bit about that. What you're, because I mean, there was a bit of, we have it currently under equality or inequalities. So um, it should be central there. Yeah. And the great thing about this for government is it's virtually free. So a lot of the things that we are talking about in Mentally Healthy Nation, particularly around services, will cost money. Money that would be spent well that would make a difference. Uh, a mental health policy test in government costs you next to nothing. But what it does is it allows you to, to query the policies you're making with a view to, to identifying, will this help to improve mental health or the lives of people living with mental illness, uh, or will it make those worse? 
And of course, what that can do is it can filter out policies that may cause harm. It can help governments to think about policies that may bring about significant benefits and potentially it can help to tweak policies as well. So, for example, it could help the Department for Work and Pensions to think about how benefits policies could be more helpful for people's mental health and well-being. It could help the Department for Education think about the way that behaviour is managed in schools. To, to benefit children's mental health and well-being. There is no area of government where this couldn't make an impact. And again, what it does is it improves the quality of decision-making. We have seen this in local government. There are a number of local councils that we've worked with that have been part of our Mentally Healthier Councils Network. Please join if you work in local government. And by just asking the question, what will this mean for mental health? Mm -hmm. They've been able to think about how you can apply uh, the evidence around mental health to things like planning policies, economic policies, housing policies, green spaces. And and so once you start to apply that knowledge, you realise that this is a win-win for everybody. Yeah. But I mean, it's like having an in-house um, revising chamber. I mean, it's, uh, instead of having to go externally, let's, let's do it in-house and then get the, the um, policy as good as possible before it's unleashed on, on, and, and potentially into greater, obviously, inequality. So that nicely leads us on then to the second sort of tranche, the second piece of the sort of report on equality and how we trying to look at that, the difference in health gaps across different groups and trying to close that. So what are yeah. the key messages that you should propose in the report there, Andy? So there are so many in the, in the area of, of, of equality, and, and I'll just talk about a couple just of illustrative examples. I think we have to start with the toxicity of racism to our mental health and well-being. And we're very clear in the report because of the, the vast quantity of research and evidence we have that institutional racism creates harm to people's mental health and well-being. Systemic racism causes harm to children's mental health and well-being. That is why we see such extraordinary disparities in terms of outcomes, both uh, within mental health services, but also externally, particularly for people from black communities, but many other in the UK. There's nothing inevitable or inherent about this. So actions, again, taking a mental health policy test, things like the hostile environment policy would need to change very significantly the ways in which um, school exclusions seem to operate particularly against black boys would need to change but we also need to acknowledge that mental health services have been part of that system mm -hmm. uh, and and the much poorer experiences people have have if you like reflected the racism that experienced in wider society uh, we have a very important in initiative the Patient and Care of Race Equality Framework, which, which has recently, at the time of recording, been published, it sets out a very clear agenda. So here's something that government has already got behind that needs to be given time, given resource and, and effectively implemented so that mental health services really can change and really can put racial justice at the heart of what they do. I mentioned earlier about inequalities in life expectancy. So we'd also like to see real systemic action to improve physical health support for people living with a mental illness. That would include help to quit smoking when people would like to, fairer access to cancer screening, to immunisation programmes, but also thinking about some of the inequalities that actually cause the, the unfairness in terms of life expectancy. So tackling poverty, one simple thing that we could do is ensure everyone living with a mental illness has good access to welfare advice services that ensure that you get the benefits you're entitled to, that you're helped with your housing. People aren't living in damp, mouldy housing. Um, that the, the people are helped with problem debt, for example, which we know has a really 
significant impact on, on people's well-being. And so, so we're really thinking about that systemically. And again, there are a number of actions, very big and very focused, that could make a very big difference here. Yeah, and, and this always resonates. We often get a shout out for the MQs, the Gone Too Soon project that I co-led. Um, which the paper on reducing premature mortalities associated with mental illness. And a lot of what you just said around these is in the report about tackling these structural issues, tackling racism, tackling the fact that we know that people with mental mental illness or mental distress, their, their experience of, of access to physical health services is worse than people without mental, mental illness. And they're, I mean, the whole, they're, there's a whole host of things from that really fine grained access to services right through this real structural systemic stuff as you highlight so yeah. and then the other one i think in that one is also reforming of the justice system um and making more uh, obviously rehabilitative and, yeah. and community-based as well okay yeah. so it's interest of time then uh, andy let's move on to your third the third sort of um broad sort of a, a group of actions and that's under support obviously ensuring that everybody uh, has access to timely and local and um, the services and support that they need so what are the key or key highlights there yeah so so um just before we published um a mentally healthier nation we worked with the nhs confederation on a report called no wrong door and and that that explored what should mental health look, services look like in a decade's time. And, and that was a really good starting point to help us to think through uh, what kind of changes we want to see in relation to services. It is important to say that we're at a point now where the long-term plan is at the end of its first five years, and there's no evidence that there's going to be anything to follow that nationally in terms of government investment. So we're at a really vulnerable time now for mental health services. We have seen expansion. And it's a good job we've seen expansion because needs in society have risen very, very sharply yeah. over the last three to four years, uh, such that, that even though there are now more people working in services than there have been, vastly more, we've seen a really significant increase in the workforce. Uh, and that, of course, is what you mostly spend money on in mental health services. Access is, is if anything, getting harder. Uh, and we're seeing some very long waits start to appear in the system, which, of course, is awful for anyone experiencing a wait for mental health care. That can be a really, really difficult time in your life. So, so there has been some progress. We need to maintain that progress. We also need much better accountability for the times people wait. So, so it's now two years since a, an NHS England report set out some new access and waiting time standards for mental health services. We need these in place so that in the same way as we record how long it takes to get access to elective surgery, for example, we do the same for both children and adults waiting for mental health treatment. But we also have to accept that services need to change. We can't just have more of the same because yeah. we know that what we got at the moment isn't working for everyone. Um, so we do need a really clear sense of reform to the kind of support that people are offered. And 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 I think we've all acknowledged that the Mental Health Act that governs the legal powers around mental health services is horribly out of date and urgently in need of updating. It's now nearly five years since Sir Simon Wesley's report set out an agenda for reforming the Mental Health Act in England and Wales. And we are still waiting. And that is incredibly frustrating. And of course, in the meantime, not only do we have outdated legislation, we have outdated built, outdated buildings and facilities. And, and uh, people are still being treated in substandard environments, which, which is not OK. This comes back to this point I made earlier. It's been all talk and no action or not enough action. And that's just another example of it. Um, and, and I know, obviously, the national purse is under 
incredible pressure and, and, and I know all that, but again, it comes back to not only is this a moral and ethical argument that people with mental health problems or if you're trying to prevent them or get the support that they need either preventatively or certainly when they're in, in, in terms of when they really need them. Well, again, the economic argument stacks up as well. It's it's so economically it makes sense as well. If you could proper joined up mental health services, integrated care between physical and mental health services mm. would be even better and more cost effective. But but just listen to your last couple of minutes. I'm I'm sort of a bit more deflated than I was in this in the sense, of Andy, that what you're hiding again are the challenges and that and that mental health, although yes, it has moved up the political ladder a bit. It's nowhere near the top. It's nowhere near the top. And and as evidenced by the King's speech, as evidenced by the scrapping of the 10-year plan. So try and give me, try and fill me with some hope, Andy, maybe. <laughs> I mean, I feel incredibly hopeful because I believe there are people out there across the country who want to make a difference. We've changed the narrative on mental health. It was something that politicians didn't care about or didn't need to care about more there are lots of politicians who cared about it but they didn't need to there was no sense that it was important as an issue in society we still had a conspiracy of silence around mental health i don't think we're there i think that's changed and i hope it's changed for good we can't take that for granted but i hope it's changed for good i i think we now have a situation where actually we can hold politicians to account that 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 political parties will want to compete to have the best mental health policies at the next election. That's what I certainly hope will happen. And we will do our best to to uh, bring that about. I think we also see in our work with uh, local government, with combined authorities, that there is a real enthusiasm for doing something to improve mental health and tackle mental health inequalities. NHS England have put an enormous amount of effort into the long-term plan for mental health. And although there's a long way to go, there is a long way to go. Five years is not a long time, is it? They've only had five years to do something, which is the work of a decade and a half. So we're at a point now where we could either squander the improvements that have been made and go backwards, or we could keep building on those. And I believe that we have an opportunity to keep building on those. We won't be taking no for an answer. Our expectations are higher than they used to be. We don't just take crumbs from the table anymore as mental health charities. We expect a fair share of health funding. We expect a fair share of government attention. Uh, and we don't take second best anymore. And, and I think we used to be guilty of doing that. And, and uh, that's a line below which we must never again fall. And again, we see examples where investing in mental health does make a difference for, from um, liaison psychiatry services in hospitals to uh, maternal mental health services to to uh, many, many things happening in local areas and community gardens, all sorts of things which are there to, to support people have better mental health. And they've all been brought about because people have said we want this mm-hmm. well you've I'm, I'm i'm more hopeful now andy oh good thanks thanks good no, no so i suppose i wasn't trying to be overly negative because i agreed i agree with everything you've just said but i still think that we are stuck well there's different there's different priorities in different parts of the uk i think in mm. scotland for example i think that mental health gets a much better deal than maybe other parts certainly other certainly northern ireland or england I think we are definitely getting a better deal, and it is more more of a priority. And suicide prevention, or I th- I personally believe, seem to get more of a hearing. So, but I but I can see it in England as well. It is moving up the agenda. But but I think when we when push comes to shove, I still think that it still is one that it's politicians still see it often as too intangible. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's other things which are more tangible, more they can demonstrate change because, as we all know, it will. 
it will take a step change. You mentioned, and we've been talking about years for years, you mentioned we need to think differently about how we can um, configure and deliver services. Right? So we've been saying that for as long as I've been working in mental health. Me too. And and it hasn't happened. I mean, there's been some changes, but we really need we really need a big, a real um, thing like adolescent, child and adolescent mental health services. I mean, how you, are young people? You have to, in many cases, too often you still have to wait a year to get proper treatment. Mm. Yeah, you might get assessment. You get proper treatment. I mean, you can't. Mental health doesn't wait for a treatment to become available. And I think that's whereas. So I think we have we are moving in the right direction, but I think. We're living the cost of living crisis and obviously coming back from COVID. Yeah, so I just think we need to, as you continually doing at the Centre for Mental Health, which is great to see. And I loved your message about we're not going to take no for an answer and our stand, and, and we know what we're asking. Our aspirations are greater. So that's, that's I mean, those encourage me. Yeah, and, and I think holding on to hope without being naive is incredibly important. You know, it's the job of the voluntary sector to have those high expectations, to expect better, to mm-hmm. not accept that that dropping a plan halfway through, failing to meet a manifesto commitment around reforming the Mental Health Act, that, that we take those as acceptable. They're not. But we also have to accept that there is a long way to go. The cost of living crisis is taking its toll on people's mental health. So is the climate crisis. So are conflicts happening in different parts of the world, including here in the UK, making people's lives really, really difficult. So the scale of the challenge is undoubtedly huge. But um, that doesn't make us want to run away from it. It makes us want to confront it ever harder. Yeah, that's a brilliant message. We're almost at an end there. Um, So maybe... Two last quick ones, Andy. One is, what do you hope to will happen in the next five years? So what I hope is that we continue to see investment in mental health services, but that comes with a real message that they have to change too, that we have less reliance on coercive services, the use of inpatient care where we know it's not helping people, which is not always the case, uh, where we see a real change in the way autistic people are treated in the mental health system. I would expect in five years' time, the patient and care or base equality framework has started to make a big difference, but it is still as important then as it is now. We don't have that short-sighted dropping of it the moment something else comes along. And then in wider society, we have a government-led mental health plan. That plan goes across the whole of government, and it's starting to change decisions being made at the centre that affect all of our mental health and well-being, uh, and that people living with mental illness are very much more in, in the driving seat in terms of how services are developed and improved. Um, so there is a real spirit of co-production, which again, we're seeing the beginnings of now, but we know we've got a long way to go towards. Great, great. No, I like, no, that's a really succinct and uh, wish list and um, hopefully a delivery list. Hopefully it'll be a delivery and, and realisation list. Okay, so Andy, the very last thing we often do then is ask this unrelated question, and it's a wee bit unfair, but it usually gives us, it's a nice way to end. And so thinking about if there's one person living or dead, right, so you would love to have a coffee with or a, or a dinner or a chat with, who would that be? So I, I can, am I, am I allowed to think of two different people? You can do for, you can go for two, that's fine, yeah. So so uh, somebody who I would love to just listen to would be uh, Andrew Young, who was one of Martin Luther King's um, oh. uh, co-leaders in in uh, the... the uh, really kind of key end end of the civil rights movement and he was the guy who sat behind who did a lot of the thinking and strategizing and the planning of the uh, 
the, the work that they did, but was also, you know, very thoughtful. And, and I loved reading his autobiography and I thought really interesting and, mm. and how you hold that position of being the person behind the people who are at the front, but but yeah. still very heavily involved. Um, he was also an ambassador to the UN under Jimmy Carter. So, yeah. so that's pretty amazing. Uh, and yeah. um, then on a, a personal, slightly more nerdy note, um, I, I would just be amazed to meet Jim Lovell, uh, the captain of Apollo 13. Yeah, oh, that's good. That two very Which different. is also my favourite movie. There you go. There's another bit of disclosure. Apollo 13 is your favourite movie? Totally it is. Oh. Mm, it's not it's not a well, godfather for me <laughs> we're each different i mean that's the great thing there's lots of movies out there plenty to choose <laughs> mine is Indeed. dumb and dumber <laughs> yeah you're dumb and dumber that's... yeah <laughs> no but the apollo 13 i must go and rewatch it it's a while since i watched it actually uh no i think it's a good movie but um no i will i'll i'll, I'll rewatch it on that recommendation of your best movie andy so andy on that note thank you so much for taking the time craig and i are delighted that was a Really, such an important report, um, and anybody can get access to it from the Centre for Mental Health report, so please do, and let's all continue the the working together as we do in the mental health sphere to really prioritise the mental health of the nation. So thanks so much, everybody. Thank you. MQ Open Mind is presented by MQ Mental Health Research, the only organisation that exclusively invests into scientific research around mental health. Our vision is to create a world where mental illnesses are understood, effectively treated and one day prevented. Please leave us a review and let us know what you think about the podcast. Each review helps us reach a wider audience. Visit mqmentalhealth.org to learn more about MQ and mental health research.